find where you are. The Atheist, a poem by Rachel Kennedy. Jerusalem wrapped around man's ankle, weeps for memory, but I've only known the stones of home and the throat of a deep blue sea. So let us begin anew, a new president once exhorted the nation. And so we'll begin again here at once, in the tumult of dreams, of six white moths outside my kitchen window, of a dog with a cluster of spider's eyes, of someone spooning brains from the skull of a baby, and the baby smiling. But suddenly, as often arises in the unfolding of dreams, I'm back at my old high school, wandering outside the theater before a show. Dreams of performance are often tied to this space, where I first learned the strange work of a stage, gathering its possibilities, its curses and graces. I'm running late, but have stopped to search the crowd for a cigarette. And when I finally bum one from a stranger, before I can light up, the cigarette breaks apart in my hand the tobacco scattering onto the ground, a first frustration. I've come to expect this sort of failure in dreams, even if in slumber I'm seldom lucid enough to anticipate the pattern. Performance, in its most practical sense, is about being prepared, being present, hitting the mark, poised in that certain expectant readiness necessary for play, whatever the specificity entails. The anxiety, then, is in unpreparedness. The broken prop, the dropped line, the missed cue, and even a recurring scenario in which the very performance itself comes as a surprise. How could I not have known there was a show tonight? Like stopping by a church on a whim, only to find myself just in time for my own wedding and to a stranger. But in this dream, mercifully, those customary humiliations are postponed. Instead, another possibility intrudes. Toward me in the crowd, from the east, low in the sky and silent, glides a massive flying machine, Jonah's great fish, or the early Christian ichthys, sculpted in the web and flange and rivet of skyscraper steel, its caudal fins sweeping back and forth, driving the beast along its way. It's immense, stunning, overwhelming. Seeing it, my heart leaps in all expectations of performance forgotten. The fish courses west and I follow, suddenly elsewhere, a further unfolding on a broad and sweeping plain, a ruined landscape of rust and rank weeds. Up ahead, in evening light, a skyline, a cityscape, silhouetted on the horizon. It was years, many years, before we traveled out here to the southern plains, 
on our way to a new home in Oklahoma. My wife driving, the children restless in the back of the van, on I-20 west from Shreveport, and up ahead, immense, stunning, overwhelming, as though captured in its own slumber, that same city silhouette against the sky. I don't remember if I said anything aloud in that moment of recognition. I suspect I didn't. I suspect I kept it in my heart. Somehow, I dreamt of Dallas. This is Lidwine, Imagination for the Remnant, Season 1, with work by Rachel Kennedy, Elizabeth Cramp, and Maria Illich, and featuring the music of the Cimarron Kings. I'm your host, Brian Kennedy. This is Episode 1, The Ghost Outside. May 13th was the first, and then May 14th was the second. May 13th happened while I was sleeping at night, and then the second one happened the next day while I was napping with the baby. So the first dream, dreamt last night, a man was going to style me, prepare me. My hair was done by women and I looked good. He came in and called me a name I can't remember, but then he said, no, that's not right. And he looked into my eyes. I saw what he saw. I saw my own green eyes with gold and brown flecks swirling and shimmering. You are Bacchus's sister, is what he said. Then today, napping, I dreamt I was looking at a drive-in movie screen. I could feel energy all through me. I was Bacchus's sister, and I could burn the screen down if I wanted to. Then I heard a voice say, Sister of Bacchus, listen closely. In the beginning was the word. Out here in Oklahoma, on the southern plains, the noonday sun is dazzling, annihilating, inscrutable in its immensity. Light convulsed from illimitable fire. It's a glimpse adorning the eyes of the Lord's own garments, a glory from which one can only beg, as did Peter atop Mount Tabor, to be sheltered. The sun is at home on the plains, and Scott Mamaday wrote, precisely there does it have the certain character of a god. We've been in Oklahoma six years, my wife and I, our children, in an old house with black widows and 
fiddlebacks haunting its peripheries, clutch of palm-sized wolf spiders underneath the cellar stairs. Stray cats wander the yard, and strange dogs slipped loose from their chains. Across the street, an old woman in a blood-red housecoat sits in a chair on her porch most afternoons, smoking cigarettes and scrolling through her phone. Flyover country, it's called. Each day we look up at those jets stitching back and forth across the sky, sometimes four or five at a time, braving the realm of the terrible sun, bound for elsewhere, bound for the coast, trailing cloud. Shortly after we arrived, there appeared in our neighborhood a young woman we called the Witch Lady, shuffling down the street in an ill-fitted T-shirt and pajama pants, giggling, muttering, whirling her arms and sculpting in the air with her hands arcane, indecipherable shapes, as though casting spells at the broken trees lining the road, the maple, the hackberry, the Bradford pear, casting spells, hence the name. Where she came from, where she stayed, we never knew. But one morning we saw her cross into the park across the street from the house. And as we watched with cups of coffee through the front window, we saw her lay herself down in the grass, carefully, face down with her arms at her sides, stiff and straight, near the edge of the empty basketball court. A minute or two later, a passing pickup truck slammed its brakes and stopped. A man jumped from the truck and ran to her, thinking she must be in distress or worse. Oklahomans in the main are friendly and kind, always willing to help. But as he reached her side, she leapt to her feet, and he leapt backward himself, startled and confused. She gave him a dark, disgusted look, then scurried out of the park and down the alleyway behind the Seventh-day Adventist church. The Samaritan stood there a few moments more, unsure of what had happened, the teaching in the parable somehow obscured. He got back into the truck and drove away. Out here in the middle, the broken heartland, red dirt and dust, what Norman Mailer once bluntly named in what seemed a simpler time, those flat lands of compromise and mediocre self-expression. It's a curious place, peculiar, because even from its outset, characterized by afterthought, indirection, implication, a territory forced upon the eastern Indians Tocqueville himself saw the Choctaw crossing the Mississippi at Memphis in wintertime, headed west. That new homeland then begun to bend and break under the steady pressure of outside events, the building and becoming of other places, Texas, Kansas, Arkansas. And the drawing of their boundaries, their light from dark, their waters from dry land, offering together a space between space left waiting, as though Oklahoma was not itself the loaves and fishes multiplied in the hands of the Lord to the wonderment of the crowd, but rather that basket of fragments gathered by its disciples after the miracle dispersed. Then, in April 1889, 
the first land run, the crowds pouring south across the Cherokee Strip to devour even these fragments. And the West was won. Blaine dreamt of coffee. My husband was making it. The grounds were tan, not dark, in a Folgers tin. We never drank that coffee, but I realized we were using it to save money. Always poor. But the coffee was rancid, and when I looked in the tin, the light brown coffee was filled with clumps of white seeds that looked like pumpkin seeds. He clenched his jaw, and he looked like he was going to be sick, then very angry. Seemed like our life, all our endeavors blown to bits. Then went outside, turned to face our house. It was a white two-story with pillars like a Greek revival. He was sitting on a chair with his arms like a king on a throne. He grew dark, his whole head blackened with twig-like hair and beard. His eyes were light and glowing in a dark face. I thought of Pan. Then a friend pulled into our driveway and I noticed our house on the water. We were right on the ocean. I greeted her and held out my arms to show her the ocean as if it explained everything about us. And I showed her all the ripples in the water where the whales were zipping about. Then a whale dove out of the water and I began to fall in, so frightened to be in the water with those creatures. Before I fell, I saw a pale yellow figure in the water, facing up just beneath the surface. It could have been me, but I'm not sure. Our first day on the plains, driving somewhere on I-35 north of Dallas, that city of encounter, that strange city of a dream. I fell asleep in the van and woke up sometime later, north of the Red River, anxious and disoriented. Opened my eyes and saw outside the windows the crumpled prairie and the endless, overwhelming sky. I remember a moment years ago praying after Mass and through some subtle sense suddenly aware of Presence billowing from the tabernacle, almost roiling the air, offering itself without reserve into the world, even as the world itself spun closer. What the apostle called the breadth and length and height and depth. But in its movement and immensity, not comforting, not reassuring, nothing so simple or self-serving. For the gospel's not some vague palliative, it's a man raised from the dead. And I tried to hide behind the pew to get away from it. I felt something like this in the van that day, our first day, already startled by that recollected dream, that glimpse of Dallas, but now cowed by the immensity of the firmament, the Oklahoma sun and sky, that presence, and me, crumpled like the prairie into insignificance, wanting only to hide, to disappear, but afraid to move, stunned, a jackrabbit caught in the shadow of a hawk. It happens here, I thought. It happens here. Do you understand? Some people won't. Some people in this land have emptied themselves of all expectation of anything but appetite, leaning together 
headpiece filled with straw, alas. But for you others with ears to hear, do you understand what I mean? I think I mean the end of that awful sense of waiting hanging over us. It's hung over us now for years. A nation of distraction and idleness, of sexual bulimia, endless war, celebrating monsters. And all of us haunted bodies, wandering in a haunted land, wondering if there really is any more we, or if it's only you and me alone, us and them. A sense that things have spun out of control and are headed towards some inevitable confrontation, some necessary reckoning. As though America in our time has to offer not wealth or progress or sweet dreams of a better life, but rather apocalypse, the veil grown thin, the gaze transfigured, the truth itself beheld with awful clarity, awful intensity, like shining from shook foil. The bay trees in our country are all withered, and meteors fright the fixed stars of heaven. The pale-faced moon looks bloody on the earth, and lean-looked prophets whisper fearful change. Two Lives, a poem by Elizabeth Cramp. Blood white, you were the tiger of appetite. Today, faint is that moment when the inseverable remained became the slow blown open heart in yeasty weight that froths brilliant yellow, cashew blue, a pattern grammatical to all parts attached. Before that, I built from skin mutinous hours of writhing, eons thieved from time's long sigh, and then there were hieroglyphs, wet from burial, joining like a song from apocalypse. Two lives unhooked, the air, the air, and the childhood lived from the ground. Yet the inseverable remains. That stellar paradigm imprinting my wing propagates congregations of selves who hang together like heavy cloth or quake alone like ransom leaves. Each marked with the mark that's for ascent lives first as a creeping thing. I dreamt that we were in a place, the whole family, some house. I don't quite remember what it looked like, but I remember from one of the doorways I could see out into a yard, and there was what I thought was a buffalo at first, but then I saw that it had horns. It was very big. It was a bull, and it had smashed its way through the gate, and there was a man working on that property that the bull had flung in the air with its horns, and it was coming into the house. And I told the children to run into a room and shut the door, lock the door. And I think part of me realized that would be futile because it was so powerful it could break right through the door. But that was the best I could do. And I started to run after the children, but I didn't know where they had hid and the house was sort of maze-like because there were lots of corners and hallways. And trying to figure out, there were lots of doors I didn't even know by the time I went after the children. I couldn't tell what door they had gone into, but no matter which way I turned, the bull was there. I remember going down a hallway and then turning a corner thinking, 
I could find a way to outrun it or hide, but it followed me and it was kind of herding me into a corner with its horns. And I don't remember how it calmed down. I remember probably yelling for my husband, but the next image is me up in the hallway looking out a window at my husband leading the bull out into a field with his hands. I don't even know, almost like he was holding it by a collar or a yoke or something, but he was leading it out and it had calmed down. And then the next thing I knew, we were down by the ocean, my husband and I, and there was a dolphin that swam up to us and my husband stripped down and he dove into the water and swam off with the dolphin. And I mean not gone, I mean swim around. I don't remember him swimming off into oblivion, but that's all I remember is him swimming with the dolphin. And I think I do remember him pulling himself back out of the water, but I'm not sure. It's not just decline I'm talking about, or end of empire. It's not the price of groceries or the strength of the GDP. It's something fundamental, something dire. Last spring, another young woman, only 24 years old and pregnant with her second child, set fire to our neighbor's garage. When she was a little girl, she began hearing voices started seeing things that weren't there. The voices told her she could fly, and her mother would often find her standing on the roof of their house, readying herself for ascension. She had blackouts. She sometimes exhibited multiple personalities. She first entered a psychiatric hospital at age nine, then six more times by age 19. She didn't finish high school. Her first job was at a strip club in Oklahoma City serving drinks. She told the court she quit due to the pressures to be an entertainer. She admitted she did try to be an entertainer because it was, quote, just the top that came off, unquote. She stated it was good money but left her feeling degraded. She would drink tequila like crazy to get through her shifts. It's not something she would do again. She was first arrested for obstructing an officer, a criminal misdemeanor. Guy in a car, she said. The driver? Car stalled out and he took off. Was only me in there. I was asked his name and said I didn't know. The driver had been going 120 around the corners as he was running from the cops. I was getting a ride home. He saw the red and blue behind him and hit the gas. Cops were yelling at me, asking me my name, but I was shaken, glad to be alive. They were shining the flashlight in my face. I was bawling. I got charged because I wouldn't give the guy's name. I didn't know his name. I'd seen him in the past. I don't know anything about this guy. I will do what I gotta do, she said got myself into trouble. Several months later came the fire next door to our house. I blew a car up, she related. All I remember, I was not intoxicated. It's hard to explain. The father of my child, it was his car. I found he had slept with someone while I was in jail. I lost it. He had given me a house key to this lady's house 
was the home where it happened. I thought we were dating. The young man in question had been arrested and jailed the day before on charges of drug possession and child endangerment. I don't remember it, she said, but I did do it. I lit a bandana on fire, set fire to his car. It was in a detached garage of a house. I'm glad it was not attached to the house. I took the key back to the house and apologized to the lady living there. She was just in the crossfire of who I was angry at. I was angry with him. I was outside that day, walking my dog. I heard this young woman screaming, saw a pillar of black, billowing smoke. She ran to me from the yard, asked me to call 911. She was shaking and crying. It's going to be okay, I told her. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. It's all I could think to say. What more could I say? And so the fire department arrived. And then the cops. The cops looking like they'd seen it all, but had rather they hadn't. And a crowd gathered in the neighborhood. One man even sent up a drone to film the scene from above. I walked away, wondering what happened and how they'd make sense of it all. It was only later we learned she was arrested. What failure. For her, certainly. For her children. But what burdens me more is the rest of us. The world, our nation, our people, has no real answer for this young woman's dilemma. No balm of comfort for the pathos and confusion of her circumstances. Medication might keep her off the roof. The courts may allow for deferred sentencing or community service. Social services might offer job training or counseling. And the church, too, has programs, services, the calendar sacraments. And me, a Christian man with a good family and regular habits. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. Which might be a normal thing to say, a nice thing, but doesn't exactly qualify as evangelium, good news, gospel. I thought of the women who gathered around the Lord in the beginning, the lady companions of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, Joanna and Susanna, the woman at the well, the woman with the jar of oil for anointing. In America, in the 21st century, we're unable to offer any longer a compelling account of ourselves to the poor. Instead, we medicate, we purge, we excuse, we endure. But we no longer answer. Answer those whom St. Vincent de Paul called our masters and patrons. Because what that young woman needs, desperately, what we need, was what those other women witnessed long ago. Mighty deeds in a word of power, efficacious. Take up your pallet and walk. Go your way. Your sins are forgiven. Let there be joy for those who love my cause. But we've lost that necessary word, 
lost it somehow along the way. I dreamt I saw off-white clouds starting to spin in the sky. I told the children we needed to find safety. The children argued and I was so frustrated arguing with our lives in danger. We hid in the bathroom, then I realized that the door was open and thought one of the kids was outside, and there was. She ran in and I began to realize I was dreaming, but I wanted to get inside all the same, so told myself I needed to see the grass, the walkway, the door, or else it didn't count. I wasn't inside. I wasn't safe. It was hard, but finally I was inside actually hiding in the bathroom, and I looked out a window that doesn't exist in waking life. It faced the south end of the street, the gulf. Saw a huge white figure like a man, lean, muscled, like a dancer, but white like ivory, a white beard and black eyes walking up our road, as tall as the water tower. He turned to look at the window where I was peeping, but didn't see me. That's when one of the kids went outside. I was so frightened because I knew he would kill us. He would eat us if he saw us. When I was closing the door with our children safe inside, I noticed it was now dark and all our neighbors had porch lights on. I didn't know if this was a way to ward it off, to ward off the tornado or that white figure. I climbed the stairs in my dream my house in waking life doesn't have those stairs, but in the dream my house had two stories and I realized the second floor led out to a veranda totally exposed. I told everyone to stay in the lower level until we were safe from him. This is not unique to Oklahoma. This flight from the poor. This fumbling for a word. Pick a direction and go. To San Antonio. Memphis. Rapid City, South Dakota. I drove eight hours west of here, to Santa Fe, named for the holy faith of St. Francis in 1607. I met a man named Virgil, sitting alone in a doorway near the cathedral downtown. He slept by the river, he told me, but only after dark. It's safer then. His family, a daughter and her children, call him Pops, she took the children back to Missouri to keep them from their father. The man had become dangerous, crazed on methamphetamine. Pops planned on joining them in the fall when the weather is cooler. He did two years in the Navy in Vietnam and still cries when remembering the war, especially what was done to the children. In 1979, he played a show at CBGB in New York with a punk band, Virgin Dog Meat. Pops played bass. He had DOA and MDC tattooed across the fingers of either hand. Dead on arrival, Missouri Department of Corrections. He was robbed recently, not for the first time, and wondered aloud at mankind's puzzling capacity for cruelty. Why steal from a man who has nothing? In Kentucky, he said, these kids come after me with a stick. Four of them in a group started beating me, left me laying there all bloody. Then they started laughing at me. Look at that old man bleed. A day later, another man, Joey, outside in Allsup's in Tucumcari. 
He sat beside the ice machine, smoking, confused, covered in flies, begged for change from me in mumbles, hardly trying. He had love and hate tattooed across the fingers of either hand, but never heard of the night of the hunter. Is it good? He asked me. America's poetry inked into the hands of the poor, unknowing. Are you from here? I asked. He nodded his head. What's it like? All around were the ruins of the Mother Road, Route 66, a horde of tourists snapping photos of vintage signs. There's nothing here, he answered. Nothing to do. There isn't even a store, not even a Kmart. Farther down the road, inside a McDonald's, a tiny, leather-faced woman pushing a wheeled wire shopping basket whispered to me, He's getting tiring. Who's getting tiring? I asked politely. We stood near one another, getting ready to order. I tried not to notice her gaudy costume jewelry, her rings on every finger, her two prosthetic legs. The ghost outside, she said. The mouth outside. It's been too many years. We've been out here on the plains now six years. My wife and I, our children. This used to be the frontier. The outer edge of the wave. The meeting point between savagery and civilization. We've grown wary of those words. Civilization carried with it the sword and the cross and the tension between those two missionaries of the West defined our past. I suspect they'll define our future as well, despite our best efforts to leave both of them behind. We stand today, a candidate once declared before his party, on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats, that same candidate met his end, of course, some years later, in Dallas, that city of encounter, that strange city of a dream. There was something else at the end of that dream, that after following a great steel fish toward the city on the plain, I suddenly found myself back again at my old high school, back to getting ready for a show. I was in a classroom, and the desks were piled high to the ceiling with clean white shirts. I went through the pile, frantic, trying to find a shirt that fit, a costume that might define my role. How could I not have known there was a show tonight? What part am I to play? And what are my lines? Surely I must have learned my lines. Surely they must be written down somewhere. And so I searched the shirts, and waited to take the stage, waited for words, words sweet as honey in the mouth, waited, remembering Dallas.
So it was Wednesday, the Wednesday before my mother died, that last week of her life. My aunt was up taking care of her, and my mom was in bed. At this point in time, she didn't get up and leave her bed anymore. My father was downstairs, and she had drifted off. And at a certain point, her arms flew out to the side to grab hold, kind of like what you do when you're having a falling dream. My mom's arms just came out, and they went out to the side like a T almost. And she yelled, panic, panic. And my aunt was there. It frightened my aunt. And she said, what panic? It's me. What's happening? And my mom said, I don't know, just panic, panic. And it took a while to calm her down. And then my mom recognized my aunt and calmed down. But she was out of breath from the experience. So she didn't really explain what she was panicking about. So we don't really know why she yelled that. But she happened to yell that. We don't know if it was a bad dream or if she was maybe seeing things that maybe weren't there or were there or was simply struggling, you know, struggling because she couldn't breathe well. My aunt also thought that maybe she didn't realize that she was still alive, that she kind of was waking up but not fully awake and didn't know where she was, what was happening. So this panic that this was death I got back down to Texas again, once upon a time. I sat one afternoon on a city street at an outside table with a cup of coffee, writing in my notebook. At some point, a disheveled young man stalked toward me from across the street, his muscles twitching, his body drenched in sweat. He pulled up a chair and sat down. What did you just write? Tell me. I paused, wary, then read from my notebook. It's not that the rich man is unloved by God. It's only that it's hard to see the rich man through his riches, just as it's hard to see the poor man through his rags. I like that, he said intensely. He seemed in every moment as though trying not to scream. I don't agree with it, but I like the poetry. Let me tell you a story. I want to write it down in your book. Will you let me? I nodded and passed him the notebook. He began to write, speaking aloud as he did, haltingly, a man's voice, but a child's cadence. There once was a dog. The dog was in a cage. The cage was outside. One day, it started to rain. Some people could see the dog in the cage outside in the rain and it started to pour and someone felt bad for the dog. They brought the dog some food and someone else felt bad for the dog. They brought some water and someone else felt bad for the dog. They brought a blanket and so the dog had food and water and a blanket but it was still in a cage and it was still raining. He grew agitated. I can't do this. You need to write it. You need to write this down. Write this down! I grabbed the notebook and pen and wrote quickly, trying to keep up with the flow of words. My name is You Are Blessed. The facts are that this just happened. How many times has this come to pass? 
Where were you when I was dying? Do you need a pair of shoes? He paused, spent. He reached into his pocket and dumped a handful of change, pennies, nickels, dimes, onto the table. That's all I have in the world, right there. We both stared at the coins. How many days in your life have you spent in poverty, he asked. None, I answered, honestly. I hate you for that, he said. We sat together a moment, staring at one another, silent. I can show it to you, he said, if that's what you want. You can see it for yourself. What's that, I asked. The truth of it. Just come hang out with the homeless guys, that's all. There's no harm. We got beer, cigarettes. I shook my head. I can't do that. Without a word, he grabbed his coins, stood up, and walked off into the street. I watched him go, watched him stop to bellow at a passing highway patrolman, teeth bared. Watched him stop to beg from another man at a gas station on the far side of the street. Soon after, I returned to my hotel for an afternoon nap in soft, clean sheets. Someone held the door for me as I entered. Someone called me Sir. Ladies and gentlemen, Cimarron Kings.
A Weird Tale, The Widow and the Orphan, by Rachel Kennedy, read by the author, the first of two parts. It was a dream. Her body hung upside down, surrounded by fire and smoke. She twisted to look behind and saw her son with his eyes open, unblinking, his arms dangling overhead. She tried to reach for him to get to him, but was trapped. David, she screamed. His mouth was a gaping hole with no answer. Burning, we're burning, she thought. She screamed his name again. David, David, baby, please wake up, please. She struggled to get free, but something pinned her down. Blood came running around her arm, streaming along the veins of her trembling hands. She didn't know anything where she was, what happened, just that she wanted to get to her son. We're burning, we're going to burn to death. David, David, wake up. God, please help us. David's lips were a perfect circle, and from that empty blackness came the sound of birds taking flight. She closed her eyes, feeling sick, and when she opened them again, a moth, white dust and black eyes like wells, was suddenly close to her face. It was giant and as cold as snow. Something covered her mouth to keep her from screaming, antennae wrapped like ropes around her body, and a voice that came as many voices said her name. Karen. She thought, I'm flying. I'm not burning. I'm flying. David is burning, but I'm flying. She woke. The daylight shone on the boy she still believed to be her son. He sat on the floor of her bedroom studying his hand as he moved it palm up, palm down, laughing and talking all the while. David was dead, she thought. He was dead. She lay quietly, watching the boy as he played, taking her time to let the dream slip away. Still the image remained of him burning, with his eyes open and empty. She wanted to hold him to feel for herself that he was alive. Hey, buddy, what's that you got? His bright face met her own. So happy all the time. How is he always so happy, she thought. Mama, you're awake. It's about time. Make me pancakes, he shouted as he moved what he was holding onto the floor. She laughed. First coffee, then pancakes. What were you doing? He came to the foot of her bed. I found a ladybug. It was on my window. She sat up against her headboard. They're good luck. Why? I don't know. I was just told when I was a little girl that they're good luck. And now you're telling me. He laughed and gently touched her foot that poked out from beneath the bed covers. Her body recoiled as if from a spider. David smiled and said, Mama, did I scare you? No, honey. She lied. You tickled me, that's all. Karen thought she simply mistook his hand for a spider or a bug, even when she clearly saw his hand reach out and touch her. It was the first lie she told herself about her son. The lying was done in the same way she recoiled from his touch, out of instinct. Why are you up so early? No school, remember? It's Saturday. I wanted to look at you. She rose and put on a sweater. Why? I don't know, just cause. You didn't wake up and so I got bored. 
I'm hungry. You slept too long, Mama. She ruffled his hair without thinking of spiders at all. He felt normal again, just like her son. A thought flashed in her mind briefly, like a blip in a bad transmission. It must have been the dream that frightened me. She made her bed while David ran into the hall, making up songs and sounds all his own. Automatically, she put her room together, brushed her hair and her teeth. Before going downstairs, she crossed to the other side of her bed and pulled a T-shirt from a drawer. It was a dingy white undershirt. She held it to her face and breathed in deeply. It's him, she whispered. He's still with me. Mama, she started. David, jeez, you scared me. I'm so hungry, Mama. Okay, okay, I'm coming. Breakfast was made, and the memory of her dream receded to the back of her mind. And as it receded, the grief of her life pushed forward, so that the morning became like every morning following the death of her husband. Only now, the grief was easier to hide. In the first weeks that came after Colin's death, her face was sorrow, every piece of it heavy and folding down. But as time passed and the grief became the normal sensation and the world expected her to move beyond it, she learned to wear a face that felt like a lie. It smiled at the good fortune of others, pretended to notice the weather, laughed at the simple joy of making breakfast for her son. It was all a lie. She told herself that if she kept on lying one day, she would begin to believe it. Her face would no longer feel like a mask, but be an ordinary face again. She needed to believe in this for David's sake. Most mornings, she sat at the small kitchen table and thought back to the day Colin died. Playing his death over and over in her mind became her morning ritual, reliving the pain, recalling the smell of the sick room, the way it looked at night and the way it looked by day. She ran through all the scenes of suffering, always trying to find a way to transform them with some far-off fantasy, a spell of sorts, woven from her own design. The fantasy was an elaborate reworking of the real, done so carefully in the desperate hope that it could truly change everything, so that once it was complete, just like that, she would open her eyes to find him sitting across from her, alive and smiling, saying, I'm here, Karen. I'm right here. But every day she opened her eyes and was alone. On this morning, there was no fantasy, no spell. Her body was too exhausted to hope. Instead, she thought only of his death. How when he was still alive, sometimes his eyes were already gazing upon a world Karen could not see and maybe didn't even believe in. When she noticed this, a panic would strike through her and she'd call him back See me, she would say. See me. See where you are, not where you're going, not yet. She was thinking all this when she heard in her head Colin's voice. What you give freely will be given back and more, Karen. She pushed it away, thinking to herself, It's not true, Colin. It's a lie. You're gone. That's it. Just gone. I wish I was dead. I wish I was dead. I wish I was dead. Mama, I love you so much. David's voice pulled her from her dark thoughts. Hey, buddy, I love you too. She brushed his hair to the side of his forehead and saw his eyes shining with excitement. 
Mama, I'd have nothing without you. What do you mean? How would you say that? She laughed as she spoke because it was such an odd thing for him to say. Because it's true, Mama, isn't it? He looked right into her eyes the way he once did when he was a baby, and she was his whole world. Yes. Yes, it is for now, anyway. You're still little, and I suppose you'll need me for a long time. Ugh, what a burden you are. She grabbed him and tickled his neck, making him laugh. When she stopped, he touched her face. See, it's still good, Mama. And he ran off to the living room. She rose and looked out the window. The sky was dreamlike with large clouds moving overhead and the slow-rising sun lying beneath them as it streaked gold banners across the ground. The grass was still wet from the morning dew when Karen noticed an animal moving quickly away from the house. There's a dog outside, David. Look outside, do you see? In a moment, David called back to her. It's a fox, he said. How can you tell? She squinted her eyes. It was moving up a hill going toward the woods. For a moment, it was out of sight. She thought it was gone when it suddenly came out from behind the trees. It was a fox. You've got better eyes than me, honey. It's cute, he said. She watched it move farther up the hill. Just before it crossed into a darker part of the woods, it stopped and looked toward the house. It sees me. It's looking right at me, Karen thought. She backed away to hide from view. Then she laughed in spite of herself and looked out the window again. The fox was gone. She decided later she would talk to David and tell him to be careful outside, not to approach the animal if he saw it. Spring came slowly. One day the air was warm and the world relaxed, relieved that winter was finally gone, only to find the next day was filled with driving rain and a wind like winter was beginning all over again. The cycle repeated day after day, week after week. Finally, the last cold day of spring came and went, and everything was green, gold, and blooming. David was much like the coming of spring, meaning he changed, too. The changes were so small that, at first, they were barely perceptible, like the quiet growth of spring. But also, like spring, the changes were suddenly there and undeniable. Karen became aware of these changes little by little until they were all she saw. She listed them in her head, trying to make sense of them. David ate less. He didn't want to see his friends from school as much as he once did. He never seemed to get tired. At night, when Karen would let him stay up, he watched the stars instead of television. When he did, they sat side by side drinking soda. David never spoke when he looked at the sky. This ritual was new and strange, but peaceful. When she sat by him at night looking up at the sky, it was the only time Colin's death slipped from her thoughts. One night, they sat watching the sky from meteors. Karen told him to make a wish, but he told her she could keep all his wishes. Later in bed, she dreamt of David as a baby. She was singing to him, and he began to sing with her. He was only an infant, but somehow he knew how to sing, and as he sang... Stars lit up in his black eyes, and meteors shot across them. David spoke. Make a wish, Mama. Don't be afraid. Make any wish you want. She woke up before she could. 
but the greatest change was present in his eyes. The eyes were David's, same shape and color, same size, but somehow they looked different. Karen believed the eyes changed because it was almost as if David was seeing more. He watched everyone and everything so carefully and with genuine curiosity. He was a student of everything around him. Where a normal boy might only be present to his world, David was present to the world. They often walked together on the weekends, and David used to run so far ahead, Karen was anxious for him. Now he stayed close to her, holding her hand and knitting his fingers through hers. On these walks, he'd ask her about when he was smaller or when she was a little girl, and he'd hang on every detail. One day as they were walking, he asked about his father. Tell me how you met Daddy. I've told you that story a thousand times. Tell me again. I met your father at my cousin's. Melissa? Yes, Melissa's birthday party. It was her 30th birthday party, and she rented a hall with a disco ball. We hung shiny paper stars and white lights all around. You helped her hang the stars, didn't you, Mama? Yes, I did. It was a big party. There was a DJ and drinks and food. And you wore a red dress that made Daddy like you. She laughed. I did. I wore it because there was this other boy I was dating, and he liked the dress too. But Daddy was better than him, right? Yes, much better. So I helped decorate all day, then I rushed home to get ready, and the other boy gave me a ride to the party. And when you walked in wearing your red dress, Daddy said, what? He said to his friend, I'm going to marry that girl. Well, I didn't really get along with my boyfriend that night. I got angry with him because you found him kissing another girl, and that made you mad. She stopped and looked at him. How did you know that? I, I never told you that. Did Melissa ever tell you that? He shrugged his shoulders. I don't know. I, I guess so. David pulled on her arm. Then what happened? Well, I got mad, real mad. And you threw a fit like I do sometimes, right? Right. And your daddy pulled me away. He picked you up and threw you over his shoulder. He did, and I got really angry then, and I told him that he better put me down if he knows what's good for him. But that only made him laugh. He carried me outside to the parking lot and told me I needed to cool off. And it was so cold outside because it was January. It was one of those freezing cold nights in January where the sky is clear and you can see all the stars ever made. I can see how cold it was. I can see your breath in the air and the stars in the sky. You can. He nodded. Keep going, Mama. I like this story, David said. And when he spoke for a moment, she thought she saw his breath in the air too, even though it wasn't cold. Your father put me down and gave me his coat, and I went to kick him, and that made him laugh too. He asked me what my name was. I told him, I said, it's Karen. What's it to you? He said, Karen, you're the prettiest girl I've ever seen, and that boy in there is stupid. But you know what? This is a good day because now you know he's stupid and you don't need to waste your time on him. Instead, you can spend that time getting to know me. What did you tell him? I told him even if he was the last man on earth, I wouldn't use any of my time on him. I went to go back inside, but he told me to wait. He said, dinner, tomorrow night, one night I'm buying. And if you don't like me, you never have to see me again. Deal? And you said yes, didn't you? I didn't answer him. I just turned to go back inside and your father yelled, 
Hey, can I have my coat back? And I said, come get it tomorrow night. The next day, he showed up at my place at six in the morning. He was standing at my front door in the freezing cold with no coat on, holding coffee and donuts. And he said, I've been up all night and I couldn't wait any longer to see you. It made me laugh. We ate breakfast in my little kitchen and the weirdest thing was that it wasn't weird at all. It was like I already knew him. He kissed you that day. Did Melissa tell you that too? The boy shrugged. I just see it, like I saw your breath and the stars when Daddy brought you outside. Kissing's gross. David ran ahead of her. The sound of leaves rustling off the path caught her attention. Squirrels ran over the ground. She turned back to follow David and never noticed a pair of eyes watching her from the shadows of the woods. One day she found David looking at photographs of himself when he was smaller, when his father was still alive. He was sitting in front of a large mirror in the upstairs hallway with photo albums spread out around him on the floor. It wasn't unusual for him to do that. He liked looking at pictures of himself. It was his face that was strange. It visibly changed with each picture he looked at. She came up behind him, watching him in the reflection of the mirror, watching him copy the faces he saw in each photograph. The boy turned the pages of the album, and there was one of his father lighting candles on a cake. David ran his fingers over the picture. Daddy, he said, and his face changed from curiosity into the same smile that was Colin's face his father's face, frozen in time, holding a flame to the wick of a candle. The faces David made before were strange because they were so exaggerated, but he still looked like David. This was different. The imitation was deeper. It was impossible, but somehow David's face was more like Colin's face than his own, or like Colin's face was laid over David's face. She stood above him, unable to break the spell. A face over a face, she thought. She was staring, and for a moment she saw the living flame of the birthday candle flicker in David's eyes. Eyes that were like wells, that were deep and dark like wishing wells. Karen cried aloud and the flame went out. Mom, I didn't know you were there. Mama, what is it? David asked. She was afraid. I I thought I saw something, but I was wrong. It's nothing, sweetie. She sat down beside him and looked into his eyes again. They were just as they always were. He touched her hand. It took all her will not to jerk it away, not to show how ill she felt. Do you miss Daddy? he asked. Every day, she said. I know, he said as he closed all the albums. She thought, without understanding why, how different a face looks when it's worn by someone else. Another time she was cleaning the house and her mind yet again drifted to the day Colin died, his death being the memory lurking behind all other memories and thoughts. The day Colin died, she held his hand and told him she loved him, but his mind was already gone. Karen stared at him trying to see the man who laughed at her in the light of the parking lot the night they first met, the man whose silhouette was etched by the sunrise in the curtain of her door the morning he came to win her the man waiting in the cold by her door, trusting perfectly that she would wake up and open it, the man who held David the day he was born. 
the striking difference of the tall young father with his helpless child in his arms. She didn't see that man in the dying face before her, but she loved him anyway. Maybe she loved him even more because she knew what he once was, what the illness took from him. Searching for Colin in her thoughts, searching for the days she shared with him when he was alive, were all draped in the shadow of the last day. She moved about cleaning the house with his death on her mind when she stopped at the sound of singing coming down the stairwell from above. The song was so strange, so unlike anything she'd ever heard before. Her thoughts became like a dream. She was in a dark place, sad and alone, but two hands pulled her out into a light that was soft as if illuminated by a full summer moon. The hands were the hands of a child. She couldn't see the face, just fingers twining around her fingers. Together they walked. She was being led by a child through fields of white flowers that were more like snow and stars falling and spinning in a black sky. The air was cool and clean. A third person, a man in darkness with some great light behind him, was walking toward them. Karen, the silhouette said, let me walk beside you. There were wings as soft as dust brushing over her skin. The dream disappeared when a matchbox car fell down the stairs. She saw David on one of the top steps. David, were you singing? She asked. Yes, did you like it? He answered her, seeming pleased with himself. Very much. What was that song? Where did you hear it? From me, he said. You mean you just made it up? I mean, it comes from me. That night, the moon was a smile hanging over the darkness of the world. Karen sat watching it move through the sky. Who are you? She said out loud. Alone, she thought. I'm alone. She began gathering all the strange pieces of her child. A new child, she thought, and then quickly pushed the thought away. She wondered if Colin's death was making her lose her mind. What am I supposed to do? I'm all alone. She had no way of knowing that David was lying awake in his bed. I'll never leave you, he said to himself. Where Light Bears Fruit, a poem by Maria Illich. Let this divine mystery bear fruit in me, St. Blaise. How could Agricola's men storm the clearing outside your cave and not falter, finding you seated there on a limestone ledge beneath a terebinth tree, your arm elbow deep in a lion's wide mouth, as you eased a thorn from its red throat. Not kneel hearing the sparrows burst from the viburnum like holy thunder as the lion padded away. You smiled and rose. Only the grim centurion dared approach you, dared shackle your wrists and deliver you to Sebastia, where you hushed the jangling marketplace by pulling a jagged bit of bone from a choking child's throat. Some say the centurion wept when Agricola's jailers stripped you, beat you, 
raked off your flesh with iron sheep combs, forced you to kneel on jawbone shards, took your head. Some say you smiled even then. Would that I embraced suffering so. Instead, I curse the incessant sleet and slick cement, the prying wind tugging at my skirt, my heels clattering in the vestibule of a church whose drowsing windows wait for sunrise to rouse their flame. I slip into an empty pew near the wall where white candles flicker for the dead, clench my rosary, murmur prayers burned into my heart five decades ago when all I loved still lived. I'm tired of this shadow life. Ready me, Saint Blaze, for a grace unearned. Steady my throat for the kiss of a pair of crossed white candles bound by red ribbon. Burn away the briars, the thorns, the burrs snagging my soul. Rekindle my heart, O Blaze, so I might bear blessed light. I don't remember a whole lot. It's really hard to tell what I remember or what I remember from your memories, from you sharing your memories. I think we got there at night. We it was did. already pretty dark, right? We did. So it I feel was like we a set long up, drive from Sedona. I feel like we set up the camp in the dark. I don't even know what we ate. I don't know if we we made a fire. I don't think to cook we did. something. I don't think we did either. This isn't our first journey to this part of the world. We married in the fall of 2001, and after the wedding, on honeymoon, left New England and drove west toward the Grand Canyon, but with the country wide open and beckoning, took a meandering route, abounding in flexuosities, a path of least resistance left by imperceptible weatherings of the continent. We found ourselves, after some days on the road, in mountains at the eastern edge of Tennessee, hogback ridges scarred in autumn color. We camped beside a cold, clear stream running shallow in its bed and watched, late into the evening, elk herds step from the forest into the meadows of the bottomlands to graze. The valley there seemed haunted, as though startled from its sleep, frightened to find itself a swarm with strangers instead of kin. Out among the trees were old empty houses abandoned decades before when the government seized the land. There was a church, the schoolhouse, and even a small cemetery built along the near vertical incline of a hill, a spot unfit for farming and so perfect for the dead, forgotten souls under fallen leaves. After dark, 
My wife sat in our tent writing poetry by lantern light. Stay by me when the melting comes and all the bones of yesterday rightly shall be swept away. Touch my hand while bulbs begin to breathe and flowers send their seeds soaring through the air. Earth turns over restless and soil pulses hope in green leaves. But I am pale as the one who died on Friday. The sun hurts a sheltered heart, fries it on some forgotten sidewalk. So what shall I say when they ask from where I came? When they ask, are you awake? And all I want is to close my eyes. Hold me while ice subsides to warmer times, when movement is heard in breath and song. Keep me while the earth moves on, exhales uncovered, for Saturday is waning and I am unprepared for this new life. In my own notebook, I had an outline for a first novel, a kind of epic fantasy western about a reporter, an American, trapped in Indochina toward the end of the Vietnam War. Shot through the heart, a restless spirit seeking dissolution, he's forced to follow the Mekong River upstream to its source, accompanied by a retinue of native gods, hungry ghosts. I imagined B-52s, angelic, scattering payload across the six green jewels of the countryside, pillars of smoke and flame, the crumbling sapphire cities of the Cambodian mountains, and lengths of human spine, human bone, left along the road to Angkor. The story came initially from a nightmare I had about the war, running, lost in the jungle, and all around I heard the enemy signaling back and forth with clanging pots and pans, whistles and gongs. I was being hunted. Suddenly, there was a house in front of me, its front wall destroyed, the roof collapsed. I ran inside and found a baby doll propped up on an old cane chair, the flesh tight and burnt, hairless, almost a skeleton. It stared at me with shining eyes, and I heard it whisper sweetly, I am the angel of death. The angel of death is upon you. I wrote it all out, but never got past the outline, because I didn't know a thing about war. Not really. Not then, and not now, either. I should have been writing about nightmares. After three days, we left the mountains and drove on into Tennessee. Outside Memphis, a small whirlwind broke across the interstate directly in front of us, bringing with it a torrent of rain and thunder so resounding it cut through the music on the radio. The driving was dangerous, approaching impossible, but after a few awful minutes, the sky cleared and the city rose before us, draped in twilight rain, as if it were seen like Oz, as cut from jewel and precious metal, instead of asphalt, concrete, and steel. Late that evening, 
drinking in a not-so-crowded Beale Street bar. We watched a broad-hipped black woman dance slow guitar blues, alone, across an empty dance floor. thing I remember I know that's not true I don't know what happened first but I feel like the, the wind must have been first there was this rushing wind I mean just the sound of a rushing wind it felt so loud that it felt as though we should have been blown away in our little tent a pilgrimage the writer Paul Eli noted, is a journey undertaken in light of a story. For the two of us, newly wed, married in the church, yet still years away from a regular practice of the faith, we found ourselves dangerously unmoored, longing, if not yet listening, for that call which might give our life together some measure of intelligibility. Pilgrims at heart, perhaps, but come of age when all well-trodden pilgrim roads had fallen into disrepair and disrepute, arrowing toward empty, disused shrines from which the glory of Israel's God had long since flown. Children of decline, unwitting survivors of what we'd later learn is the most aborted generation in American history. We inherited only fragments and the promise of desire. What part are we to play, we asked ourselves. And what are our lines? Surely they must be written down somewhere. People your age have too many choices, my uncle told me. You have nothing forcing you in any one direction, nothing forcing you to choose. When I was your age, the choice was clear. I went to college because I didn't want to go to Vietnam. You have to pick a direction on your own. Find your way somehow. Good luck. So we searched for signs to guide us. For our honeymoon, at least, it was my uncle again who gave us a way forward. He sent a postcard postmarked Grand Canyon, Arizona. On the front, ribboned walls of rock in a haze of rust-red sunset. On the back, he wrote, You've got to see this. Landed in Las Vegas. Wow. Five hours later, standing on the edge of time. Before decamping from Memphis, we stopped at Graceland, Elvis Presley's mansion, on the front lawn of which his mother, before she died, kept her chickens. The tour was guided by headphones, startlingly loud, which only underscored the peculiar obscenity of the place. The house itself 
seeming not so much a time capsule as a crashed alien artifact from an adjacent galaxy of nouveau riche peckerwoods. I thought of the camel and the eye of the needle and of poor greasy Elvis himself, overweight, constipated, overmedicated, in his slippers, feeling slighted by the drift of the times but still taking care of business, shuffling down the fully mirrored stairwell to his TV room, three television sets placed side by side, just like LBJ had his. On the coffee table crouched a white ceramic monkey statuette, its tail curled, its fingernails and toenails painted black, its perfectly round and staring obsidian eyes curiously gentle, wistful even, its hair swept back like a maitre d', and cradled in its paws what looked like a ball or a piece of fruit, or perhaps it was meant to represent that lost homeworld of the Peckerwoods, and this their galaxy's monkey god, passionless, contemplating some impending eschaton. I said to my wife, take a picture of the monkey. Only because my ears were overwhelmed by the narration, the trivia of the TV room, it came out as a bellow. Take a picture of the monkey! And every person in that room turned to stare at me. Who's the peckerwood now, friend? As my wife, embarrassed, reached over and turned down the volume on my headset, the clearly marked controls for which I somehow overlooked. From Memphis, we traveled south on Highway 61 through the cotton country of the Delta and camped in Rosedale on the riverside. We met a stranger there beside the Mississippi. But when we told him we were newly married on our honeymoon and wanted to be writers, gave us such a look of pity and concern, it took us aback. If you're out that way, he said kindly, when we mentioned our drive to Grand Canyon, go to Sedona. I felt like I was in this weird space between waking and sleeping, and somehow something was touching me, but I don't know because it could have been a dream, but it felt like the walls of the tent were pushing down on my face. And and I feel like I remember just in a, a half sleep and annoyed sort of way, pushing back with my hands. And I feel like I remember a hand on the other side of the tent pushing back my hand, almost the way that, you know, you would play with somebody. Somebody would put their hand right up against the palm of your hand and push and you'd push. It's almost like I could feel that, like something teasing or playing. I don't, I feel as though what was happening was more, whatever was going on, had nothing to do with us. And for us to Mm -hmm. wake up and to be a part of it would have been bad for us and bad for whatever that was.
words are necessary, especially for aspiring writers. But those we need the most oft-times elude us. My wife told me that when she was a girl, she thought she saw an angel. She sat on her kitchen floor, playing with toys, alone, but grew restless, distracted, with an odd and unmistakable sense of something near, something she should be seeing but wasn't, something right in front of her. She wanted to see, so she closed her eyes and opened them, closed and opened them again, until the scales shook loose somehow, and there it was, an angel, or what a little girl thought an angel should be, fixed in the air above her. She can't remember any wings. Its eyes were very kind. It didn't say anything. It didn't sing. She stared, overwhelmed, for as long as she could before she had to look away, and then only for an instant. But when she looked back, it was gone. Later on, she began to wonder if she really had seen anything at all, if she just wanted to see something, anything, and made the whole thing up. Maybe she just didn't want to think about what it would mean, really, to see something so singular, sublime, terrifying, crazy. Which was it? She's right, though. There is a clear difference between the limits of speech and a lie. Already in that fall of 2001, with the arrival of war, we heard the difference between anguish desperately articulated, if clumsily, and on its heels the language of what Orwell called swindles and perversions, words like freedom torn loose from native soil and used instead to garnish the prerogatives of empire. The church, too, in that season crept toward crisis, only months away from her Armageddon of Gagans, Shanleys, and eventually McCarrick's. But for a faith founded upon a revealed word, and that word made flesh, to note how completely, how scandalously, the word's bride could be captured by the words of the world, of corporate liability and the fatuous marketing techniques of soda pop or toothpaste or sneaker advertisements was breathtaking, disquieting, terrifying. Which was it? Not simply in the church's handling of sexual abuse. Even in as principal a concern as the Eucharist, her teaching of the bread and wine become the very flesh and blood of God. The poetry is near now to being lost. Our catechism quotes the Second Vatican Council in calling the Eucharist the source and summit of the Christian life. That this phrasing be an almost pristine example of a mixed metaphor is hardly noticed. Mountains have summits, but not sources. Rivers have mouths. Which is it? It is many things, but certainly not well-wrought English. To think and speak in such a fashion, 
without a clear image in mind, is to think and speak in slogans alone, which is really to stop thinking altogether. Every such phrase Orwell wrote anesthetizes a portion of one's brain. Is it any wonder, then, when the faithful cease to believe? Source and summit is careless. Committees rarely do better. Well meant, yes, but consider that along with the skulls of Jesuits and bishops, the road to hell is said to be paved with such intentions. We should instead recall those words offered to John the Revelator on Patmos, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. And these unmistakable antipodes, the Christian life reveals itself as a journey in word and time, a journey marked in broken bread and so in memory, a pilgrimage through Natchez, Mississippi, and Brobridge, Louisiana, perhaps, through Houston, then Austin, to a house where an old pit bull and a one-eyed emu patrolled the yard. What you got to ask, you know, the man there told me, is who wasn't there that day? Who knew enough to stay home? There's more to it than you or I'll ever hear about, that's for sure. Man, they can't let people know the truth. Things are changing. Things are going to change for sure. And of course, I'd never say it to her face, but a woman will always be willing to give up a certain amount of freedom for security, and that's just nature. Waitresses gobbling diet pills at a breakfast diner in Fort Stockton, then El Paso in the hovels of Juarez across the river, a night of food poisoning and other madness in Albuquerque, until finally, at the end of 4,800 miles, standing, stopped, at the edge of time, Grand Canyon, USA. Temple and pyramid, tower and sun, the shame of the earth laid bare. And that place is silence, unmeasurable duration, unspeakable. Some things just can't, just shouldn't be said. But we, the people, forgive us, Father, we don't know what to do. Faces crowded at the edge, grunts and moans and cackles and camera sounds, like the devils let loose from the gerasene and chased into the grease-flesh filth of swine, run on and pushed out past the safety of the trees toward our ruin, but still no one able to follow through. The blue thread of the Colorado just too far down and gone. The leap now foolish. The chance passed. Each moment reminded the two of us we shouldn't have been there. It didn't seem right somehow. We crept back to the edge after dark when the crowds were gone, a mighty wind overflowing the canyon walls, spirit risen from the bedrock floor of time. And they should hide that place from the likes of us, from all mankind. Cover up its nakedness like Noah's. Cover up its nakedness with angels' wings. 
or 4,800 miles of perimeter wire with orders to shoot on sight until the shame of it is lost to memory, let alone until the guardians themselves forget and fall. Then some starman come and crawl across the red rock to watch the Colorado make its final cut and flood the far side of the world. Let someone else see that place. We stayed one night and drove away at dawn. I mean, I think we were very intent on leaving. We were all business. You took down the tent, I went and cleaned up, you went and cleaned up and packing up the car. Right, we knew we had a six hour drive. Right, and we just left. I mean, we didn't. I think we were quite unhappy too. We were, yeah. Yeah. So. Because we remembered what that stranger in Mississippi told us, we left the Grand Canyon and drove south to Sedona. He was right. It looked like a car commercial. We got a hotel, drank beer, argued, and didn't go outside. Our journey had stalled. Our pilgrim appetite had soured, and we were left alone, the two of us, to scrounge for some more palatable morsel. We married in the church that fall of 2001, but after the wedding waited years before returning to the altar, hearts and bellies hungry for the broken bread. In many respects, we thought we were gone for good. There were many excuses to be made. It was, and is, an age of disbelief. It was easy to walk away. We weren't alone. The numbers are grim. For every one person now who enters the church, six depart. The advent of a so-called secular age in which, to paraphrase the philosopher Charles Taylor, belief and unbelief present themselves as equally valid for you or me or anyone. A post-Christian society, as though the weary West might say, like Paul, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Yet favoring this quasi-neutral language of a plural culture, geared toward winsomeness and relevance in the public square rather than gospel, obscures rather than clarifies our position. In an age of swindles and perversions, post-Christian might be the mightiest swindle of them all. What could be beyond Omega, beyond the end or the last? Have we not instead allowed the enemy to confuse us, to tempt us with words? The Apostle Paul, in his correspondence with the Thessalonians, warned against any expectation of the Lord's return unless the apostasy comes first and the lawless one is revealed. Antichrist, the one whose coming springs from the power of Satan in every mighty deed and in signs and wonders that lie. No man knows the hour nor the day. In many earlier ages argued the end was near enthusiastically. My aim is not to suggest a looming parousia 
But if, as all our tradition attests, the advent of Antichrist be preceded by a great apostasy, a great falling away from the faith, would not our age be a fitting prospect? And wouldn't a refusal to call our apostasy by its name not have a certain significance? Post-Christian, indeed. Such language steals from us, steals from the birthright gifted to us at baptism. For whether the Lord returns today, tomorrow, or in another thousand years, the Christian life demands we discern in our own time both the shadow of things that were and a shadow of things to come, to suffer the mystery of lawlessness already at work, but also the mysteries of grace, until comes that final falling away, perhaps our own, perhaps another, after which God's angels gather all the chaff of time for the fire. It happens here, I told you. It happens out here. Flyover country, the broken heartland. I thought I meant the end of that awful sense of waiting hanging over us. But perhaps that sense of waiting, that expectation, is the very point. Perhaps we have to learn again to embrace that waiting for what it is. A cry toward heaven. A cry for the poor. A pilgrim song in a foreign land. Come, Lord Jesus. The poor deserve delight. We stayed two nights in Sedona before heading back east. We drove all day. The car packed full of everything we owned. Blankets and boxes and tapes and books. Suitcases and CDs. Camping gear. My guitar. The map. We found the campground after dark. Out in the desert off Texas State Highway 17. South of the interstate. Ten hours east of Sedona on the roads. Balmore, it was called. We stopped knowing it was only a six-hour drive into Austin come morning. We pitched our tent away from other campers as always. Didn't even bother cooking dinner. Just slept. Sleep mixed with sounds in the night. Footsteps in the gravel. Laughter. Engines and animals growling in the darkness. We kept that way through all that happened, even as the wind rose, even as the tent started to move, started to buckle and sway. We never woke up, not really. Even when the walls collapsed in and down, brushed against our faces, and when, half asleep, we reached out to force the walls back into place, it felt like hands out there on the other side, pushing back playing with us, trying to figure us out, trying to find us. But still, we didn't wake up. Strange, isn't it? We can ignore so much when we need to. In the morning, we didn't say a word, just broke down the gear, packed up the car, and got back on the road. Finally, an hour or more down the interstate, my wife said, What happened to us back there? 
What was that? What happened? I thought of our first night out together, she and I, so long ago, back east, when we fell in love sitting atop a great rock cliff on the western edge of a nowhere American city. The rock covered in graffiti and trash and busted glass. And from up there, we could see the buildings and streets laid out in tight grids beneath us and the church steeples reaching through the dark sky toward a ceiling of stars, galaxies spinning along the firmament like dizzy white light birds. Because the night was autumn cold, we sat close to one another, limbs tangled, until suddenly there we were, she and I, holding hands, beginning. What happened to us back there? I don't know. An angel, maybe. A dream. Or a ghost. I don't know as we'll ever know for certain. I can only tell you what I remember. This is Lidwine, Imagination for the Remnant, Season 1. Produced and directed by Brian Kennedy. Produced and engineered by Jonathan Hunt. With additional voice work by Rachel Kennedy and Keila Dawson. And featuring the music of the Cimarron Kings. For show notes and more information on how to support our work, please visit our website at lidwinejournal.org. All the lords of the sky Offer gold for your insides But I'm still the man You lie down beside Lovely, leave me tonight To your arms, let the storm
I'm only a man. 